It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We'll talk about the um, the NSA speech by President Obama. And Steve will give it his report card. We'll also answer some of your questions, too. It's a jam-packed Security Now. Up next, stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 439, recorded January 21st, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 181. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with my good friend, explainer-in-chief himself. <laughs> He's waving and pointing at his head, Steve Gibson. Hi, I Steve. am a talking head. There's nothing <laughs> below here. It's just I'm mounted on a tripod. Do you wear... You know, I never asked you this. Do you wear shorts uh, when you do the show? Do you wear pants at all? Yes. In fact, I'll never forget the time I stood up to, oh, that's to right. check something and get something. You said, oh, you have no pants on. And I said, Leo, you know... On the audio podcast, that really won't that won't come across very well. So, better better very add some funny. more. Very funny, yeah. very funny. Yeah, I have shorts mostly because you know I I get worked up during the podcast and I I'll get too overheated otherwise. Really? So we got to have yeah we kind of have a yeah uh, we have kind of a gloomy day today. So yeah. it's staying cool. It's uh, seventy four degrees in the office and uh, some doves are are building a nest out outside yeah they're kind of nice, nice to hear in the background um so uh, today's so a q a we haven't done one in ages it seems like it is it was funny because i had to go digging back because we actually did a raft of them um toward the end of the year we were doing them to sort of catch up and then we had our all of our new year's things going on and then we had our new year's catch-up episode so yeah number 181 for episode 439 and we uh, will talk briefly because there's really not much to say uh, this week about Barack's Friday announcement, uh, what I call the do nothing NSA speech. Uh, we've got some news on the the famous Target uh, retail POS malware that we were expecting. Um, I want to revisit CryptoLocker a little bit because some numbers have come in on just how much of a windfall those bad guys made. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about our my TSA interview that I did last Wednesday and about Evan's note for an, an, a superior alternative that means you don't have to go to Sacramento. And I have verified you can just go to SFO. Yeah, if you yeah. Evan, Evan sent that note to me too, and I, yeah, I'm curious. Yep. All right. Um, also, a little sort of in miscellany, I found a fabulous free email archiving solution for those email pack rats among us. Uh, I'm one. My Eudora, which I'm still using, just began to collapse under the weight of, I'm not kidding you, a quarter million pieces of email. Well, and it, it, Qualcomm stopped updating it, right? I mean, it's it's orphan software. Yeah, but works fine. 
Uh, <laughs> I guess email doesn't change that. Just much. like my XP. Uh, <laughs> and um, also some news about Squirrel's password encryption technology. I've become an expert on the S-Crypt algorithm, which we talked about in a podcast many moons ago. Remember memory hard algorithms, which resist being accelerated by GPUs, FPGAs, and ASIC chips. And of course, it's a Q&A. So we've got actually nine. I don't know why, but nine felt like the right number. I given think, you, the I think of, given all the other uh, stuff, you may not, maybe <laughs> lucky to get to that. <laughs> yeah, so a great podcast. Very good. I'm excited. Um, we will get to that in a moment. First, I want to mention one of our fine uh, sponsors. In fact, this comes up a lot uh, from people who uh, listen to this show. I think if you're smart enough to uh, be listening to security now, you probably know about OpenVPN and the idea of encrypting and uh, and preserving uh, your privacy when you're on an open Wi-Fi access point or, or maybe you're worried about your Internet service provider. That's always a, a concern. And, in fact, I bet you there are more than a few of you who, like Steve, run your own OpenVPN server. Uh, that certainly be the ideal way to do it as you're on the road. It doesn't really protect you... When you're from your ISP, um, so maybe you'd want to have a, a, a VPN server somewhere out there. Um, and also, it's not—it's a non-trivial thing to do. I, I've tried to do it and find it difficult. So, enter ProXPN.com. This is a, our sponsor today. ProXPN is an open VPN provider. Uh, they'll set up the OpenVPN server for you. You log into it, and then your traffic is encrypted from wherever you are, including open access spots uh, at home, anywhere you are, to the ProXPN servers where then it enters the public Internet. Now, there's another advantage to using ProXPN. Their servers are all over the world, not only Dallas, Seattle, and Los Angeles and New York, but also London, Amsterdam, and Singapore. So you can appear to the outside world to be living in Singapore, London, Amsterdam, New York City, wherever you want to be. That means no geographic restrictions. It means you 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 really can be a citizen of the world and you don't have to worry about your internet service provider snooping on you. You know, with the six strikes uh, rules and so forth. It, they they seem to be very intrusive. I think they're even I think many ISPs are av- even doing uh, packet inspection. Uh, that's and not Leo, okay. It's only going to get worse. Yeah, it's too. not okay. It's, yeah, it's got it's got a bad looking future. Yeah. So protect yourself. Works on uh, OpenVPN, or if you're on a mobile device that doesn't do OpenVPN, PPTP. Although ProXPN's mobile apps for iOS and Android give you OpenVPN on those platforms, that's part of the deal. That's awfully good. Uh, Steve Gibson approved. Uh, this is a really good solution. Now, if you visit ProXPN.com/slash. Uh, twit you'll see immediately they have a free version and certainly that's one way to try it out but i can also uh, encourage you to do the pro version you get seven days to try it out cancel at any time so you can see exactly what the pro would offer and you can see the comparison between pro and uh and the free version most of the features you want you're going to want to get the pro version i think including speed but here's the deal Uh, normally it's $10 a month, or you can buy a year, and it's 75 bucks for an entire year. But we're going to give you a special offer, 20% off, not just for the first month or year, but forever, for the lifetime of your account. That means less than 5 bucks a month when you do the yearly plan. And you can still cancel within seven days for a full refund. So go to ProXPN.com slash twit. Verify for yourself this is what you want. I know it is. Uh, but, you know, check all the service details and everything and how it works. If you decide to buy, use our offer code SN20. 
SN for Security Now 20, and you get 20% off for the life of your account. ProXPN does accept payments through Visa. I know some, there's been word that some VPN companies have been cut off by MasterCard and Visa, but not ProXPN. They also accept PayPal. And here, I like this. This is new. You can pay in Bitcoin for ultimate privacy. ProXPN.com slash twit. Use the offer code SN20. So, let's see, Steve. We should probably so, talk about the news. Uh, yeah. Um, I spoke many times last week about the upcoming uh, speech or presentation or whatever it was, pronouncement that we were expecting from Barack Obama, uh, the, you know, the current U.S. president, obviously, about the, you know, the his administration's reaction to the the NSA. We were hoping for something. And essentially, we got nothing. Um, the EFF, I suspected, would have a nice analysis of it. And indeed, they did. Uh, I created a, a bitly shortcut for people who are interested because – and you might want to bring this chart up, Leo. bit.ly slash all lowercase bo, as in Barack Obama, hyphen NSA. So bit.ly slash bo hyphen NSA. And this is their scorecard of of his speech. Basically, uh, they gave him they, – they had 12 points, 12 major issues that they were hoping he would make some movement on. And so they could have all been ones, in which case he, he would have scored a 12 out of 12. As it was, there were – at least half of them were zeros, and there were only a couple that were ones. Uh and actually, they were both. I think both of the ones were FISA arrange or FISA comments. One was oppose the FISA Improvements Act, which he d- is doing, and reform the FISA court, which he is doing. Those were the two ones. Um, overall, he got a three point five out of twelve. Not even out of ten. Out of twelve. Um, so, you know, and as I was listening to it, I was in in real time during the the, the speech. Most of it seemed just like punting, like he was saying, well, we're going to – we will be in the future doing this and we will be in the future doing that. We're going to have a committee do this and and a lot of stuff was being turned over to Congress. So it's like, well, OK. Um, I guess you know, I'm sure he did what he felt he should. But mostly it was just sort of a nothing speech. So um, I I wanted to follow up on my having mentioned that you know that would be happening – on Friday, and it's like, yeah, okay, you know, I, I, maybe he did all that he could. I don't know. I have to think that you get in the. In fact, somebody said this that you know because he was very, uh, as a senator, aggressively outspoken against this kind of government surveillance. Yeah, and somebody said, you know, imagine day one, you you know, you just got inaugurated. You come, you sit down in the Oval Office, and they say, Mr. President, here's a, the Daily Threat Assessment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> We've got to do something about this. Yeah. So I I hate to rush to judgment uh, on uh, n- given that we don't we just don't know how much risk we you know and, and there's out there. But he is paid lip service, and I think it should be more than lip service to the notion that we got to balance protection with uh, freedoms and constitutional freedoms. What do you think about this? The NSA doesn't get to – It's gonna somebody's going to collect the data, but the NSA doesn't get to store it. They have to petition for a request. Does that not seem like an improvement? It does, and really the way I think this should be set up, the only way that it is feasible is if 
if there is a burden imposed on the providers. And they that's don't what want the they bur- don't want this at all. Yes, they don't want it. But I say tough. Right. You know, look at what you're getting. In, I mean, like the, the the amount of revenue you're generating and the 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 way the the piss poor way you're treating your customers. Typically, I mean, no, the, you know, the idea that I'm not using all my bandwidth in a month and so it resets at the beginning of the next month, and and the idea that in many play, play places I'm being charged for text messaging. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know, I mean, anyway, they've got a sweet deal. So given the cost of mass storage, the fact that cloud storage is essentially, you know, free for individuals now because it's so cheap to, to, to purchase drives in return for the privilege of having the sweet deal that the, the providers have, they archive these records and they don't have to go back forever, you know. 10 years, for example, is fine. And it is metadata. It is not large data. It is, you know, tiny little entries of a start and an end of a call and, and, and what account it was and what cell towers it was on. I mean, you know, the, the, basically the metadata. They can, it, it will, for one thing, it'll compress like crazy and tell them they have to store it for 10 years. That's their obligation if, if in, in today's, new world if they want the privilege of 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 being able to provide this service and then they happen to have to have an infrastructure that allows them to respond in on obviously automated fashion to approved requests for a query from that from that data that's the only way i can see that there is you know a believable wall but b- between the government wanting this kind of data and it's it's uh, and 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 the people who are holding it if a third party is set up that will just be seen as yeah, a, as like, a yeah let's let's have, a, have, you know, have target store it why not yeah precisely <laughs> right. well it's got to be the phone company it's got to be the telcos well, or it'll just be seen as a surrogate for the NSA right. storage right. you know it's got to be fragmented right. the NSA has to put out a request to all the providers and then they provide what they have and then and then the NSA links it together and it's worth mentioning also that it, it's it's standing out that for all of the all of the furor that this metadata collection has generated, there has been no clear terrorism win in return for all of this. That is, it turns out to be one of the weakest sources of information in in terms of actually delivering verifiable results from what we know. Well, but then again, I acknowledge that we probably don't know everything and maybe they can't talk about the wins for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of the things that is, you know, you can't, uh, this has always been a problem with espionage and uh, crypto, in fact. Remember with the Enigma machine, it was a real issue uh, for us, uh, the allies, to use information they got from the German Enigma machine during World War II because it right. would be in effect an admission we'd cracked it. Right. They had to, like, you know, set up fake, fake convoys that would just by chance encounter these ships at sea and then radio in right. in order to explain how they had the information. So, I mean, look, I, I don't want to be an apologist, it. but I also understand completely that nobody wants to be the guy who said we're going to we're going to we're going to stop all of this spying and then there's a terrorist attack the following week. Yeah. And and then of course the howls 
for saying, you know, that you're, you've, you've hobbled the, the, the age of agencies and you can't, you're not letting them do their job. And of course we got attacked and I, it's, this is a, this, this is very, very difficult. I think the whole thing is a, is a foreseeable, reasonable set of outcomes. That is, I'm, again, I'm, as, as we mentioned last week, Edward Snowden is hated within the NSA. I would say, of course he is. Um, he is, you know, heralded in other, you know, freedom-loving organizations. And again, of course he is. I think that what we saw was an overreach because in, in our own knee-jerk reaction post-9-11. It was, you know, please don't ever, you know, you can have anything you want so that this never happens again. And then we now understand what that means better. And so there will be some compromise. There will be some negotiation where we find a middle ground. And I also think ultimately we're going to get used to this. I think we're going to be surveilled. It's the new new normal. Yes. Well, and that's – I think that's the bigger question is given these technologies, the internet and and telecommunications, the kinds of technologies we rely on and we use every day now – is our conception of privacy really kind of antiquated? Because yeah. if you're going to use these technologies, it just kind of goes along with for the ride oh. that privacy might not be possible. Back in the analog cell phone days, I remember that I had my 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 Jeep Cherokee with the with the, with the cell phone in the center console where you picked it up and it had a you know a, it had a spiral cord coming off of it because all the equipment was like stored under the back seat and it had the antenna you know I mean the old style analog cell phone and I remember also having a scanner at the time which scanned those cell phone frequencies yeah. and it was moderately interesting to listen to some of these conversations. These were conversations that most people didn't understand were radio. I mean, it was in the clear. It was right there. And my point is that many times I would be having a cell phone conversation with my attorney and I would say, okay, I will call you back when I get to the office because I'm heading there now and I don't want to talk to you about this now because it was just radio. And so back then we were using a technology that was convenient and it was incredibly insecure so that anybody just scanning could be listening to one half. You only got one half of the conversation, which was sort of interesting because you could sort of guess what was going on, you know, and on, on the other side of the conversation from the part that you could hear. So step forward now 20 years and we have the Internet and essentially the same sort of thing. If you want to have a non-private meeting over, you know, multi-way meeting over the Internet, you certainly can do that with the understanding that it may not be as private as you think. If you absolutely want privacy, then the five of you go meet physically somewhere and have a private conversation in a room that is <laughs> that's hopefully secure. So – yeah, I mean it's the it's a, a different sort of paradigm, and and it is the case that um, you know we've lost this notion of this being a private medium. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very challenging. 
And I, I think, you know, I, I, we speak a lot about, and certainly those people who do this show and all of our audience, we're, we're libertarians and, and, and we, we don't want government intervention. But I think it's important to raise the, 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 the point that, there are, that these are not, I don't think, evil people. They're doing what they believe is right and they are patriots for the, I would say, almost certainly. And um, the, the issue is that we, we do have a constitution and we do have some rights and we've got to fight for those rights. And I agree with that as well. So it's just it's, well, it's tough. And, and I, think I think the they, part of the problem really may be this larger global thing that we've moved into a world of technology. This tech, this is a change, as you said, this is inevitable, given what's happened in technology. That a yeah. because you could collect all this and analyze this massive amount of big data, that somebody would, and <laughs> and uh, it was just inevitable. And so maybe we have antiquated notions of privacy, because uh, you know it's it's crazy to assume that you can use all this stuff freely and get all the benefits of it and not well, be spied on. And this is this too is no big surprise. It's always the case that the social side lags behind the technology side. You know, technology is zooming ahead creating new capabilities and and it's the it's the understanding of it and the uh, the, the social adapting that takes time. I think that um you know Kids who are growing up now who have never known a pre-internet world just sort of assume that stuff is being monitored. That's yeah. just it, – yeah. it comes with the territory. So, so their whole life will – you know, as they're living it over the next 100 years will be framed differently than ours was where we actually used to imagine that, you know – paper mail coming to our mailbox hadn't been opened and inspected and that there wasn't a keyword search being done on all of our mail as it went to and from for the purpose of monetizing our eyeballs you know with relevant ads uh, connected to the email that we were reading but that's just that's today's world now what a world what a world so we do have some more information about the 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 point of sale software malware which was installed in the you know 40,000 target point of sale machines apparently it was originally generated by a 23 year old uh russian youngster and apparently the the guy who sort of has been initially targeted was was some guy named uh, Sergey uh, Taraspov, um, and he's, I think, seventeen, and apparently he was doing like tech support for the the twenty three year old, and uh, and this twenty three year old has formally confessed to being the original developer of this. The 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 target point of sale devices are. Wait for it. XP. <laughs> They're running they are. A, a modified version of Windows XP, the embedded version, which essentially is a sort of a toolkit. I remember looking at XP embedded like years ago, wondering if maybe that would be a useful platform for Spinrite to run on, if I could, you know, get a license for that. But I'm not paying Microsoft any per instance licensing. So, uh, no, that didn't make sense. But I did learn about it, and it's essentially – it allows you to produce an, an XP 
from a, like a, a componentized model where you, you only choose the components of, of an XPOS that you actually need in your embedded application. So it ends up being much smaller and arguably has a much smaller attack surface. Unfortunately, it still does run XP applications. And so uh, since it's it's crossing over into XP's world, this is a piece of malware which runs on XP, which is able to, to, to do what's called memory scraping. Essentially, it opens the, the POS process and thus gaining access to the point-of-sale process memory, and it just does, a, it does memory scraping. It searches memory for, for the, the credentials while they're briefly in RAM after the card has been swiped and the, the, the user has entered their PIN code. It captures those and, and pulls them over into its own process space. So we know that this thing is called Black POS, um, and we've got our... Our, <laughs> our weekly trash pickup happening. Yeah, yeah, pick up sure the trash. You, yeah, you just do. Uh, you, yep. uh, you know anything you want to throw in there? Bills, uh, letters, anything, uh, <laughs> documents, patchwork. You should go ahead and put those in there. So as late as January 16th, no anti-malware software is recognizing this. So it's been known for like a, a, it was first seen back in September of last year, of 2013. And... Um, it is believed that Target discovered it around mid-December because it was briefly uploaded to the the Google-owned VirusTotal site and appeared there and then was taken down not long after. Um, so there's a research lab, SecureLert, that, um, uh, that found the sample and actually executed it under a, a, a like a, a virtual environment of Windows XP um, and they discovered that it has two stages it um, it first um, infected their checkout counters their point of sale devices to extract credit card numbers and it it co- collected them for six days then it uploaded those to another machine in Target's network. And I did notice some reports saying that part of the way they got in was poor passwords. Apparently, the internal passwords were easily guessable, and so the software used those in order to move this collected, the, the, the collected customer data onto the central server, and then, and, and after six days, and then it was... It was exfiltrated to another website somewhere else in the world, and that location was was never given. And that appeared to be a hijacked website that was running an open FTP server. So that FTP server collected this data, and then a, a third virtual private server located in Russia was used to download that stolen data from the from that hijacked intermediate server over the course of two weeks, pulling a total of eleven gigabytes of stolen sensitive customer information over the course of that time. 
And these guys say that there was no indication, given the FTP logs, the only connections they, were, they, they saw were to target servers or, or from target servers to this FTP server. And they didn't see any, no, and any indication that the, the, the also suspected Neiman Marcus compromise was also going on at the same time. At, however, in very up-to-the-minute rumors which are beginning to surface, there are apparently six other retailers that have been identified but not disclosed that are all that also appear to be victims of this software. So that's happening. You you want so me to have- mention the garbage man again? Just so if you're hearing, <laughs> it sounds like perhaps Steve has something going on in behind the scenes. It's just the garbage guys. They'll be yeah. gone in a minute. Yeah, yeah. There's always something when you live in suburbia. You got that's you got right. You. Garbage men, you got your we had, lawn. We had construction work going on this morning, and I thought, oh, Lord, how long it's is fine. this going to go it doesn't, on? But it's, it, it's it, not. It, yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I don't it's, worry it's, about it's, it. It's a, it's a real environment. Exactly. So um, Crypto Locker. I wanted to touch back on Crypto Locker because uh, Dell SecureWorks, they have something that they call the SecureWorks, I mean, our, the, our, you know, the, the, the Dell that we all know about, something called the Counter Threat Unit. Uh, threat intelligence. And what I liked about this was they had a, a very sort of executive summary they put together on, you know, for, for, for discussing crypto locker. And then, so they said, as far as the crypto side goes, and, and I like this because it was very clear, very succinct, and also used the, the latest information that we have. They said, Instead of using a custom cryptographic implementation like many other malware families, CryptoLocker uses strong third-party certified cryptography offered by Microsoft's Crypto API. By using a sound implementation and following best practices, the malware authors have created a robust program that is difficult to circumvent. The malware uses the Microsoft Enhanced RSA and AES cryptographic provider to create keys and to encrypt data with the RSA and AES algorithms, as we've talked before, you know, public key and private key technology. The encryption process begins after CryptoLocker has established its presence on the system and successfully located connected to and communicated with an attacker-controlled command-and-control server. This communication provides the malware unit um, with the threat actor's RSA public key, which is used throughout the encryption process. Then many people have had questions about which drives CryptoLocker would infect. And, And this made it very clear. The malware begins the encryption process by using the get logical drives API call to enumerate the disks on the system that have been assigned a drive letter, for example, C colon. In early CryptoLocker samples, the get drive type API call then determines if the drives are local fixed disks or network drives, either fixed drive or drive remote, respectively, 
Only those two drive types are selected for file encryption in early samples. Samples since late September also select removable drives, which can include USB thumb drives and external hard disks as well. After selecting a list of disks to attack, the malware lists all files on those disks that match the 72 file name extension patterns um, that the drive encrypts. Over time, the threat actors adjusted which types of files are selected for encryption. For example, PDF files were not encrypted in very early samples, but were added in mid-September. Okay, under action, each file is encrypted with a unique AES key. So, and that, and that's obtained from Microsoft's cryptographic provider random number uh, call. So, it's unfortunately a high-quality random AES key, and that key is then in turn encrypted with the RSA public key received from the command and control server. Consequently, due to the nature of public key crypto, you have to have the private key to decrypt that AES key, and that is never on the computer until the person pays the ransom. The encrypted key, um, plus a small amount of metadata and the encrypted file contents, are then written back to the disk, replacing the original file. And as we said uh, a couple weeks ago, there's like a little header shim added to the top of the file. And then also, oh, and then it explains... Uh, that as a form of bookkeeping, the malware stores the location, and I haven't seen this anywhere else, by the way, so this is this is new information. The malware stores the location of every encrypted file in the files subkey of the uh, hkey current user slash software slash crypto locker registry key. And that may also be CryptoLocker underscore 0388. But that, so that the, so there's a registry key there that, that has the path of every file that was encrypted. And apparently that's what the decryption software enumerates in order to go find all the files that it encrypted and, you know, in order to decrypt them after you've paid your ransom. Then after finishing the file encryption process, and this is also important, CryptoLocker periodically rescans the system for new drives and files to encrypt. So if anything comes along, you know, you plug in a USB drive, when if the drive is there during one of these rescans, it'll grab it and encrypt those files as well. The malware does not reveal its presence to the victim until all targeted files have been encrypted. The victim is presented with a splash screen containing instructions and an ominous countdown timer and so forth. And finally, it talks about payment options, which we have only had fragmentary coverage of, but we'll, we'll wrap this up with, the, with the, an amazing analysis of the amount of Bitcoins <laughs> that, and their current value, which have been transacted because that has been tracked back. So... Payment, the ransom amount varied in very early samples. And as we know, we, we, we covered this, uh, settled at what was th- essentially 300 U.S. dollars or two bitcoins back in the early days when CryptoLocker was introduced and a bitcoin was valued at $150. 
but it's but in their analysis, they say dramatic Bitcoin price inflation in the later months of 2013, and which we've talked about, prompted the threat actors to reduce the ransom first to one Bitcoin, then to half a Bitcoin, and then finally to 0.3 Bitcoin, where it remains as of the, the date of this publication. And that's where it is now. So, and then this talks about how, you know, various payment options were offered, uh, and and ultimately, money pack and Bitcoin are where things settled out. Um, and apparently, the um, the uh, malware does a scan for the crypto locker command and control control server every fifty minutes, um, waiting to verify that the payment has been accepted, and then when it has. Uh, it'll then obtain the private key and start the decryption process. So the reason I've been saying since this first arose that this was unfortunately going to set a precedent for the future is just how profitable this has been. Um, Ziff Davis did some research using some of the Bitcoin chain tracking software tracing four addresses which were used and were determined from multiple crypto locker victims who after you know paying their money uh made public the address that they had used and th- that they had sent payment to the crypto locker extortionware acquired a total of 41 just shy of 42,000 Bitcoins, 41,928 Bitcoins. Wow. Yes. And see, that makes sense when you multiply it by the, the, from another standpoint, the known number of infections was somewhere between 200,000 and 250,000. So, 41,928 Bitcoins at today's value of $960 per Bitcoin means that this generated more than $40 million. Wow. A million dollars a day, says Violet Blue on... uh... Forty million, and wow. yes, in fact, in one day there was they 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 tracked one day they tracked a million dollars worth of of Bitcoin all payment. going to the same uh, Bitcoin address. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So so the bad news is, um, all these guys did. Remember, this was written in C plus plus, so they used the built in. API, the cryptographic API sitting there in Windows, didn't have to have any, didn't have to bring any crypto themselves. I mean, that's trivial to do, but they didn't have to. It was all there in Windows. They simply wrote some software that did the crypto right. And they used the state-of-the-art botnet technology we've talked about, where, where based on the calendar, a large set of candidate domain names, random based, you know, date, you know, again, cryptographically derived date based, a a huge variety of date based domain names, one or two of which were actually valid, making it very difficult for bad guys to, to track them down. 
and uh, you know so basically a state of the art network arranged for command and control of this and they netted themselves 40 million dollars um we what this means is we've not seen the last of it I mean, this unfortunately is it, it just it's too lucrative not to be copied. It's um, not. Uh, it's interesting that that was a single Bitcoin address, implying that that was a particular one particular person. But it, there's no reason to assume it's just one person doing Crypto Locker, or is there? Yeah, I think it's one person. Just we one have. Guy. Seen, uh, yeah, well, or one organization. I mean, it was well. It was well written. It may have. It may be. You know, uh, organized crime in Russia, uh, but it's it's believed to have Russian roots. Uh, from looking at the code, uh, but I think it had a single origin. There have there there was a, there was a copy that we talked about, not written in C plus um, plus, written in Delphi, I think it was. <laughs> and there are some others which there's some buzz in the you know in the the online forums of other things coming, but that haven't happened yet. And there's been some some not quite done as well. Uh, you know, me too's already, but this is, it just makes too much money. It's, you know, <laughs> this is way more profitable than, than putting some, you know, clickware on someone's machine that, that that's going to, you know, click on ad links. Uh, this is the, this is the big time now. now all, and the, all the major antiviruses recognize it now. And of course, awareness is raised. So I presume it's slowing yep. down. I don't know. Is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yes, in fact, there are some charts that show the rate of infection and it is now way, way down. So you make so, your money quickly and, and yep. get out. Yep, exactly. Well, I mean, it's look, you know, many months and and it. You know, it was getting it was biting a lot of people. Right. So there will be another one and it will not be seen by any uh, any malware. And it will it will just all it has to do is copy this. Do the crypto right. There's been total coverage of it. So even someone who has no idea how to do it right now, they know how to do it right. It's just as I keep saying, it's just not hard to do this anymore. All of the technology is available. Yeah. I love it. They're using a Microsoft library for the crypto. Yep. Yep. <laughs> And I ran across this in one of these uh, in, in, in some of this coverage. Carbonite, uh, one of this show's sponsors, mm -hmm. was reported in November to have been dealing with several thousands of phone calls oh, yeah. from from crypto locker infected victims. Because remember, Carbonite does not map a drive letter, which means that your Carbonite, the Carbonite data stored was not. What what was not accessible to to CryptoLocker, and so what you wanted to do was you wanted to make sure that Carbonite didn't back up your encrypted files for you, or if it did, that you went back to a further version, you know, yeah. pre pre encryption version. Right. Um, but now Carbonite has a dedicated team. For dealing with crypto locker recoveries, <laughs> meaning th that they have they it's have good trained it's, up. I hate to say it, but it's good for their business. Yeah, uh, they've 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 trained up a subset yeah. of their tech support sure. people to specifically help people with you wow. know recovering from crypto locker. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> so uh, we have a friend of the show, you and I, Leo Evan Katz, who. Uh, he, I think he hails from the East Coast, but he was out here in sunny L.A. when he sent you a note and copied me on it. And uh, and he travels a lot. And so he said, R.E. TSA pre-check. 
He said, you probably do not want to get it, essentially right, ad- addressing you, Leo. He said, rather, you and your family and friends should do the global entry program run by the Department of Homeland Security, which is, of course, distinct from the TSA. Uh, Evan continued, he said, the reason why you want to do global entry and not pre-check is a global entry includes very expedited coming back into the U.S. from overseas and pre-check does not. So, you know, I'm not a big overseas traveler, but so certainly, you know, when, when you've been leaving the country, Leo, that certainly makes sense for getting back. He said, moreover, the DHS program has many more locations that you can go to, which will be much closer to where you live. And I verified that. We talked last week about how your closest TSA pre was Sacramento, whereas I verified the DHS has an office at San Francisco Airport. So way more convenient. Um, And it says, and the DHS program costs only $15 more than uh, pre-check. That's correct. Pre-check's 85. The DHS program is $100 uh, for the same five years. Uh, anyway, so he says he signs off saying Hope Wells is all is well with you and wish you all the best and so forth. So uh, I did myself. I, I did my TSA pre-check uh, screening Wednesday. So I'm now officially uh, I, I get a, a something within 21 days in the mail and uh, they fingerprinted me. Interestingly, uh, my left hand wouldn't fingerprint at all. We tried like eight times to get my four fingers of my left hand to register, and they wouldn't. Um, and I, what I noticed was on the screen, it was doing a feature extraction in real time right there. So, for example, I did my first, I did my the four fingers of my right hand, and it took a couple tries, but then it worked. And then they wanted both thumbs at the same time, so I gave them both thumbs, and that worked. But when they wanted the four fingers from my left hand, and I'm left-handed, maybe I just don't have any fingerprints over there. I don't know. And I was looking at the screen. You could see the like it imaging, and I, there was just nothing recognizable as fingerprints coming up on the screen. No matter how, I mean, he had me try it eight times, and then he said, "Okay, you, you know, you don't need them." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay, fine." So. Uh, it was sort of strange. And so basically it was an interview. It confirmed the information that I filled in online. And I'm a little annoyed that this only lasts five years because I'm probably only going to travel, you know, five times in the next uh, five years. You know, I go home for the holidays, basically. Uh, uh, but still, it, it's uh, it's such a fabulous uh, program that especially for anybody whose business has them traveling a lot, I just can't recommend it highly enough. It is an absolute win. They want to so know what. To, uh, so where did you do your uh, your Q and A for the TSA pre? I had to go up to Long Beach. It's not an airport. So, you go to a government building. Yeah. Oh boy, this thing was really low rent. I was thinking, okay, <laughs> I I. <laughs> no, you, we I want hope, government buildings to be low rent. Understand? We're paying I am the rent. Glad I'm there during the day yeah, yeah. and not at night. It was, you know, it was, it, you know, sweet E one hundred and five. And there was like a a a tractor trailer dumping ground next door. I mean, it was in the you know, and there was like old oil 
oil wells being pumped on, on the other side wow. in Long Beach. It was way, it was long. And what did they ask? Back. What kind of questions did they ask? You know, how do you feel none, about Al-Qaeda or anything? No. Nothing, not at all like that. You know, they asked me to read the things that I had already filled out online, which were, you know, where were you born? You are a U.S. citizen. I mean, absolutely nothing about my philosophy, nothing about my past. Basically, are you, you know, are you a citizen? Is this your current address? And that's it. I wow. mean, it was just sort of to wow. to look at me in the flesh. There was a camera aimed at me, so I assume at one point either I was being videoed or a picture was snapped, you know, as is the case with a, a passport. Right. Um, and, and they were, it was like a, it was like a fingerprinting center. They were doing they were doing this sort of thing, identity screening for other organizations uh, or agencies also. So it was like it was a multi-purpose uh, setup. So presumably the real check is against you and no fly lists and criminal record checks and things like that. That's all done in an automated fashion. Well, and what's so bizarre too is that people are reporting that they're getting random TSA pre on their boarding passes, just sort of as a yeah, like when Jenny said she never went through it. She's it's right. She just lucked out and got random pre on her boarding pass. That never happens. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which if and my point is as a security guy. Who's always been, you know, screaming about how ridiculous it is that I have to take my shoes off and and be patted down and be body scanned when I'm flying a 500 miles north to San Francisco, you know? Here they're just sort of saying, oh, you know, don't bother with that. We've you 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 we selected you at random from a list, and you don't have to do that today. Weird. It's like what? Then why does everybody else have to? Oh, it just makes my blood boil. The whole nonsense of all this. Yeah. Okay, so, Leo, you're going to center yourself securely over your ball. I'm on my ball. Okay, yes. <laughs> um, my copy of Eudora, which I'm still using on XP, was beginning to have problems mm -hmm. with the, I don't, it might have been the 53,000 pieces of security now <laughs> email. You don't even do email, I thought. In what? No, no, that's where the Q and A's come oh, from. Oh, the Q and A's go there. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I have received fifty three thousand pieces of email from Security Now listeners over the course of this. What is it? Nine and a half years or something? Wow. Um, or maybe we're ninth year and it's eight and a half years. Anyway, um, and in addition to that, I had an, an I had two hundred thousand other pieces of email because I don't ever want to throw them away. And it's very handy to like, you know, what was that something or other? And so I'd, you know, go searching through it and find something. Anyway, Eudora was just collapsing completely under the weight of this. And it'd be getting worse and worse and worse for maybe about the last year. Finally, this weekend, I thought, okay, I just, I have to do something about this. My point is, the point for bringing this up is, I am now, oh my God, I am in heaven. I found something free, which I can recommend to all. I know among our listeners, there are people like me. There are people who just want to be able to find a piece of email that they're sure they received or sent, you know, 10 years ago. And 
whatever they have, whatever means they have of managing it now might be, you know, causing problems. So mailstore.com, M-A-I-L-S-T-O-R-E.com. There's two versions of this thing. There's Mailstore Server, which is their commercial side, which that's eh, a couple hundred dollars for five client licenses. And then there's Mailstore Home, which is completely free. And it is un it is unbroken completely free. I mean it it works great. Um it's what I've ended up using because it was enough for me. Um, I didn't like mail store the commercial version only because it's, it was occupied like 50 to 100 megs for the server component always running in the background and then the client when you ran it. And I didn't want this thing running on my server because I like getting my mail off of the server just for security's sake and having it all be on my own workstation. Um, so... Basically, this is a very nice... This is a good idea. I like this. Yes, yeah. a very nice indexer. You can... You can so, in either the home... The, the commercial version has some additional features. The home version will pull from Microsoft Exchange, Google Mail. Now, there's an example. Google Mail. All these people who are using Google Mail, and Google has all your mail. Well... All you have to do is turn this thing loose on your Google Mail account. It will suck it all out of Google and index it and store it for you on your own drive. You can tell it where you want it to go, so it can be on a on an offline drive or a you know a, some other some other drive than, than your normal work drive or on a network drive. Um, works with IMAP and POP3 and others for. Um, for local systems, it can pull from Outlook, Outlook Express, Windows Live Mail, Thunderbird, SeaMonkey, and also EML, MSG, and MBOX files. So Eudora stores everything in MBOX files. So I was able to just have it basically, it just sucked everything out of all of my various folders in Eudora and indexed them very quickly. Um, you can also export without any encumbrances anything that it that it has archived so you can set you can put stuff back out of it to exchange mailbox imap uh or or mail it to any email address ver, uh, via smtp and also supports outlook outlook express thunderbird and sea monkey for exporting in addition to these various email file formats anyway i love it so what i have now is i am i am uh, Eudora is stripped back down to and is running at full speed again because I because for example all of those security now emails are indexed and but I and the indexing system and the searching system is spectacularly fast. I can put in any and it's, and it understands regular expressions and so forth. I can put in any phrase that I think I dimly remember was in an email somewhere and almost instantly. I am looking back through time at those things where it occurs. And I know that, you know, c contemporary email uh, systems offer that feature too. And certainly you can search your Google, Google mail and so forth. But if you'd like the control of a very nice indexing, archiving system, 
I can't recommend this thing highly enough. And it's free. So, you know, I just wanted to share it with our listeners. I'm looking uh, <clears throat> at a variety of uh, similar programs. A lot of them are commercial. A lot of them do cloud, which, of course, you wouldn't want. But the reason I am is because I'm on a Mac, and this is Windows only. Ah, and, okay. And, and there are some open source uh, solutions that are cross-platform and so forth. I mean, the idea is fairly simple. You pull down yeah. all the image, all the mail, and uh, store it in a file, and then index it. Um, yep. But so I, I think this is a great idea. Um, I found one called Got Your Back. That's an open source Gmail backup program that works cross platform. But I'm sure there's others as well. So good, but a cool. great idea. And and you know I I just leave everything in Gmail because that was the promise of Gmail originally. It's just store everything. Now wh- where is you know everyone knows your email address, Leo. That's yeah. not a secret. Yeah, I, I realize. Yeah. Where where is all that email? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's on Gmail. You just leave it. Even though you don't have a Gmail address. Oh, yes, I see what you're saying. So my non my the the address I use actually goes through two <laughs> servers. It goes first uh to uh um where does it go first? I think it first to Gmail for spam removal and then to another IMAP cl- a company, a commercial oh. IMAP. So you have so you have so Gmail pull it pulling that account uh it, it it pushes to gmail so okay. basically you hit leoville.com the server just says you know it has an mx record and says i don't you know i don't i don't do mail but uh, these guys over here google seem to and it says gotcha. so everything goes boom bounces off my server to a gmail where it's stored and then i pull it from gmail i can't remember which <laughs> truthfully i don't remember who gets it first but both have yeah. it and uh, Gmail right. has such good anti-spam uh, features that uh, I, yeah. I I always run it through Gmail. But that way you can t- you keep it forever. Yeah, on Gmail. But you keep it on Gmail. Be nice to have a local yeah. copy. I think. Yeah. So Jenny and I saw a movie yesterday. Come, this is we're in miscellaneous time. Yes, you yes. hadn't realized. Uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to the new um, Tom Clancy movie, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. I loved it. Uh, it's. I mean, I, I also love Patriot Games and Hunt for Red October and Clear and Present Danger and The Sum of All Fears. So I'm a. I'm a. So you know, consider that if you are a listener who also loved all of those and that kind of movie, you've got another treat in store because this was just. Oh my goodness, it was rip roaring wonderful. It's just spectacular. And boy, Kira Knightley is easy to look at too. So, um, yeah, recommendation. Good. Um, GRC is about to get true quantum random numbers. Um, yes. Uh, this came a couple days ago. This is the uh, – it, it's from a company in Finland uh, that produces a, a USB dongle. And, and here is a picture of it holding up in front of the camera there, um, which use, we've talked about this before. It uses a reverse biased – semiconductor junction to generate wideband Gaussian white noise. The noise is amplified and digitized through an A to D converter. The raw output bits from the A to D are then further processed um, through an embedded microprocessor to combine the entropy from multiple samples into each final output bit, resulting in a random bit stream that's practically free from bias and correlation. And so... Uh, what I'm going to do is that will be plugged into GRC server, and 
the server will be pulling from it. The, the data rate from these is typically not super high. If you want really super high, then you can spend more money. Uh, but this is several hundred thousand pseudo random or I'm sorry, I'm so used. I'm in the habit of saying pseudo that, you know, this is this is not this is this is the holy grail of random. This is absolutely quantum phenomenon unpredictability. So what what GRC server is going to do is fill up a big ring buffer of this. And then anytime someone goes to GRC's random, you know, the perfect passwords page, I will pull a set of truly random numbers from this generator and use them to seed the existing algorithm, which is now just running forward. The, and, and, and so essentially every single person who goes to the page will have truly random numbers that seed this, this otherwise really good pseudo-random number generator to, because I want to be able to handle a high traffic level, which that page is, is now generating. But uh, the pages will, from now, as soon as I get this installed, and this will be you know, sometime in the future, uh, uh, true random numbers. And I will let everybody know when we switch over. Actually, I'll put a picture of this on the page and change the diagram to show that we're actually pulling uh, from a, a stream of the universe's entropy. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Mm. So uh, I had a, I got a nice little note about Spinrite, and the guy, for whatever reason, said, uh, please keep my name off the air for this testimonial. Uh, and he just said, he said, thanks again for a great tool. I use it on all my drives personal. It's been even brought, uh, it has even brought back some drives that were getting recycled. If I came across a disk that failed a DBAN, D-O-D wipe, I would run the disk on Spinrite at level one until completed. Then, if it failed DBAN again, I would run the disk through Spinrite at level two. If again the disk failed at DBAN, I, it would be run at Spinrite level four. Only one drive out of 100, and he says literally, needed a driller platter treatment. For every other dead drive, Spinrite was able to bring it back to life for DBAN wiping. So this guy had drives that had died that he had, you know, compromising information or private information. I mean, no, I mean, and just really any, any drive that dies, you probably don't want anyone else getting access to that data. So those, it was often the case since the drive had died that DBAN, and by the way, DBAN is Derek's boot and nuke, D-A-R-I-K apostrophe S, Derek's boot and nuke, uh, which is, as it sounds, a bootable media, I think you, you can set it up for either uh, CD or USB, and it boots a little environment that runs this program that will do a relatively good um, wiping of your drive. The problem was these drives were died, and so DBAN wouldn't run. So he wasn't bringing, he wasn't using Spinrite to bring them back to life to use them, but mostly to be able to run DBAN on them. And so the good news is not long from now, that will no longer be necessary because 
there will be a a product, an inexpensive product from me, which has already been named, and I've had the trademark for it for years, and that's called it's beyond recall. And so what I'm what the plan is is I will as soon as I get Spinrite six point one finished and out the door, I'm then going to basically take the core of of that new technology that I developed to make six one run so fast and and repurpose it as a as a grc grade drive wiping tool which just ought to blow the doors off dban and everything else in terms of its performance because it will use for example the 32 meg buffer technology that i've got running already um in the work that's been done on on spinrite 61 where we can do you know multiple terabytes in the course of a few hours and so it will bring that kind of wiping, uh, and it actually will be the the second commercial product that GRC has. Um, After actually, all this time, that's only your second product. Yep, isn't that great? I actually, yeah, it's it's funny. I I was considering and proposed putting it into Spinrite, and I, there, the chorus was unanimous among all of the guys hanging out in the spinrite.dev group at GRC, no, 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 no. Do not put something that wipes data in a program that restores data. And that's like, oh, how about if I made the screen red? <laughs> how about like red and flashing neon? No, 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 no. I said, okay, fine. If you're going to make me charge more for it, then I guess I will. So, How much are you going to uh, charge, do you know? maybe 19 bucks okay yeah and you know it'll it'll live forever and and run and you can run it on all your drives and so on and so forth so very nice very nice and i mean again you can use the free one from dban or you can use beyond recall and i don't even know what it's going to do yet except a perfect job which means you know understand about the the relocated sectors and you know understand about drives that support their own low level formatting or their own ATA wiping and whatever it is it'll do the Cadillac job of wiping a drive so you know everyone has my guarantee of that how cool that you're doing that thank you and there there is a chart that came out i i i tweeted this um today Backblaze, the big you know cloud storage folks, uh, they just blogged today uh, a, a blog posting. What hard drive should I buy? Ah. I imagine if you just Google what hard drive should I buy, that'll probably take you there. And scroll down to that bar chart, Leo, because uh, I've got it in the show notes. The and annual there it failure is. rate. Yes, baby, is way lower on. Uh... Hitachi. Hitachi's Seagate's yep. way higher. Yeah, and in fact, they're seeing the, in 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 one case a hundred and twenty percent annual failure rate on Seagate drives, wow. meaning they don't even last one year. Wow. So yeah, Western one- Digital's kind of in the middle and fairly consistent, but. Hitachi's way down there, below two percent. Uh, yeah. Now the bad news is, is that Western Digital bought Hitachi, right. <laughs> right. so we hope they leave them alone. Um, hmm. uh, but but that's apparently Hitachi at the moment seems to be the the the, the sweet buy. They're a little more expensive. Um, and I mentioned too, I, I I saw a bunch of of 
dialogue about warranties, that is, the warranties are important. And I had also mentioned already that, yes, that's true, and that the drive manufacturers very quietly snuck the warranties down. Yeah. They used to be three years. They're now one year. Yeah. And so they were realizing, wow, you know, we're losing too much revenue because our drives are no longer lasting three years, which is a chilling fact. And it's a reason I'm selling Spinrite yeah. uh, to this day. Yeah. They, they point out that uh, they haven't had any Toshiba or Samsung or enough Samsung or Toshiba drives for uh, good statistics. They do have quite a few. They have 12,000 uh, Seagate and Hitachi drives, almost 3,000 Western digital drives. Um, and then a handful of Toshiba and Samsung drives. So this is probably statistically relevant. Although I would yeah. point out that uh, most of these drives are uh, more than a year old, in some cases two and more years old. And so as a result, uh, you know, what you're buying today may not be the same thing. True. By any also, means. They, it, it is the case, that, uh, and they mentioned this, that they generally are doing write-intensive work not read intensive work right whereas most users use yes. of drives is the reverse it's read intensive and bare and barely uh writing so you know that's also worth keeping in mind and the drives are never being powered down that's actually the way mm-hmm. the way i run all of mine you know my servers are never powered down and my own workstations here are never powered down yeah. um, drives really seem to last a long time if you just leave them alone and, and let them don't get them too hot and you let them just keep spinning <clears throat> we've got um, questions nine of them we're going to get to those in just a second yes yep i just wanted to give people a little update on squirrel okay uh Code exists now. I, I will, by this time next week, it will be online and available for download if people want to play. It's not squirrel code yet. This is, because again, I'm, you know, I'm marching forward, laying down a foundation of technology as we go. This is the password, the password encrypting technology that deliberately takes five seconds on a smartphone, or maybe 30 seconds if you're wanting to export a key like your, your, your galactic master identity key where you want, if you know, obviously you want to keep it safe and you're, you're, it, you're exporting it so that it's going to be safe, but you want to put it under a password which cannot be accelerated. And so we do a couple things. First of all, we, we, we needed a process that could last 30 seconds. And it turns out there weren't any. There, I mean, nowhere is there a means of having something take 30 seconds. No existing technology does that. So we have developed it um, because that's what we want. We want something so resistant to brute force attack that a brute force attacker, no matter how much technology and desire, and I mean, even the NSA you know, cannot crack this. So on on one hand, you, we want it to take a long time so that every single guess anyone makes, even you, even when you put the right password in, you're going to have to sit there and wait 30 seconds. Well, that's not a problem if it's for importing your, you know, your offline saved galactic master password. Um, but even when you're authenticating to your phone, the idea is, remember that, Squirrel provides slam dunk, you know, replacement for username and password, but you still need to prove it's you using your phone. 
So there, our feeling is, eh, five seconds. If you only have to do it like whenever you run Squirrel, um, that's not too long to, to wait for the security of a bad guy having to, to wait that long to guess those passwords. So, so what we did was we um, created this notion of, of using script uh, S-C-R-Y-P-T, that was the technology that uh, Colin Percival developed for his TarSnap um, multi-platform cloud backup solution. We've talked about that. TarSnap is a very good multi multi-platform solution for, for allowing people to, uh, you know, to, to, to do off-site uh, storage powerfully encrypted. He wanted something better than Bcrypt, which is which was all that was there at the time, and of course we've talked about P, uh, PBKDF two password based key derivation function two, which is at, and you know and there, there's an RFC for it and it's an ITF standard, which is a it it iterates, um, but unfortunately it uses the typically the SHA two fifty six hash well. That's the hash that all of the cryptocurrencies are using. So people have hugely accelerated the speed of that hash. You know, you can easily find um, uh, uh, FPGA code and even now, of course, ASICs, which have been custom designed to do SHA-256 at light speed. So basing a password, an iterative password-based solution on on SHA-256, unfortunately, allows it to be hardware accelerated much too quickly. So what Colin did was he created this notion of a memory hard function that we talked about, where you use a, a pseudo-random function to fill a large area of memory. And our standard is 16 megs. Because no GPU or FPGA or ASIC has fastest access to 16 megs. They may have local caches that or and, and same thing for a regular CPU. They may have local caches that, that gives them access to a to a, a fraction of that. But the way this thing works is it uses the random data in the 16 megs to choose the next access of somewhere in the 16 megs and the data there chooses the next access in the 16 megs. So it all has to be there at once and there's essentially no way to spoof that. So so what this does is this thwarts any attempt at using hardware acceleration. But even S-Script, when you're using per, those sorts of parameters for, 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 for 16 megs, it doesn't take long enough, but it turns out you can chain S-Script. So what we do is the, the, the user's password is put in along with a random salt into the first instance of S-Script, which probably runs uh, in the benchmarks that we've been doing. Uh, it runs maybe uh, a 30th of a second. It results in 256 um, bits or 32 bytes, we that we use that as the seed for the next one, 
and again the user's password and run that and then run the, and then use the output of that as the seed for the third instance and so forth so we iterate over script each one of these instances requiring 16 megs and the output of that one being the input to the next one then we end up XORing all of the outputs which occurred and that gives us our final 256-bit um, key, which is derived from the user's password. And as far as we know, there is no way to speed it up. And the other thing this is that's so cool about this solution is that, is that you can run it either for n number of iterations or for s number of seconds. So you can say, give me a 30-second encryption of my password and it iterates watching the time pass until that length of time has occurred and then says here you go and here's how many iterations that was because when you're decrypting it you need to use the same iteration count as you used when you encrypted it but so we we end up with a system for squirrel which allows you to either specify time or iterations it's memory hard and no way to speed it up. And this is brand new crypto technology. Nothing like this exists in the industry now. Um, the project I am on when I finish this podcast today is getting this documented. And I do have a very cool Windows console app, which has been well vetted. Two other people have re-implemented the algorithm that I explained verbally in the, in the news group in different languages and they generated exactly the same output given the same input. So we have verified three ways that, that we're all in agreement about, about making this thing cross-platform. Uh, and one of them, by the way, is an, uh, someone who's doing Squirrel for iOS. Um, and so it'll be available there and somebody else is doing it for Android. So next week I'll have some URLs for people. Uh, but anyone who has Windows or Wine... Um, on any of the uh, Unix systems can run this and it serves as an interesting benchmark because this shows how many iterations your computer requires um, or, or, or you tell it you want 100 iterations and it shows how long it takes to do 100 iterations. So you're able to, to compare essentially the memory bandwidth and throughput of your machine. It's very cool. Can't wait. Can't <laughs> wait. So uh, <clears throat> let us uh, break briefly before we get to the questions of the day. Steve Gibson is here. We're talking about security, of course, with security now. And our new time, I should reiterate, uh, you've obviously figured it out if you're watching live, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time, 2100 UTC, now on Wednesdays. Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC on TV. Uh, our show today brought to you by our good friends at Audible.com. I was thinking, boy, you know, it'd be fun to go back and read some of those Jack Ryan novels. The The current one is not an actual, it's not from a novel, is it? Like, you know, I don't think it is. I think it's, it's, the a, characters, it's, good... it's the characters based on Tom Clancy's yeah. Jack Ryan. Yeah, because, because yeah. I, I did go back in order to see what he had, and yeah. I couldn't find a book by that title. No, but we do have quite a few uh, to choose from. Uh, 16, in fact, Jack Ryan novels from Tom Clancy, and all of them, starting with the first, which was The Fabulous Hunt for Red October, 
yep. uh, is available uh, on audible.com to listen to. Audible's a great resource. If you love reading, if you want the movie to play out in your brain, then this is the way to do it. Not Wednesday, Tuesday. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> Did I say Wednesday? <laughs> I meant Tuesday. Uh, we're talking about the security now date. Hunt for Red October. <clears throat> the first one made into a wonderful uh, movie with, um, I want to say Harrison Ford, right? Who was in Hunt for Red no, October? No, that, that was, uh, that, that was uh, uh, oh, Sean Connery. Uh, Sean Connery yeah. and and yes, yeah, Sean Connery played yeah. the Russian captain and oh, so good. Uh, not not Alec Guinness. I can't Alec think Baldwin. of his name. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Yeah, a young Alec. Um, a young Alec Baldwin. In a a yeah. young exactly played played Jack Ryan. Audible is available uh, right now for you for free for the first thirty days. That means your first book is free. Uh, the real challenge is picking that first book. There are a lot of wonderful books to choose from. Um, Classics, of course, uh, from Oliver, uh, Oliver, uh, I want to say Oliver Dickens, from Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, uh, right up to uh, the Tom Clancy novels. And um, I'm just listening to uh, a brand new uh, novel from uh, John Grisham. His newest stuff is here, too, and all his old stuff. I just noticed this. I thought this might be good for some people who like to listen to this show. Uh, a, a kind of definitive biography of Nikolai Tesla, um, which, uh, you know, has been long needed. I've read some books on Tesla, but this is, this, is the f this is from Princeton University Press. This is the first kind of really scholarly biography of a guy who really uh, many consider invented the electrical age. Uh, his inventions, patents, and work formed the basis of modern AC electricity. He also, you know, in many ways developed uh, radio and television and was a great competitor to Thomas Edison. I think this would be a fabulous book. But here's the deal. You can get this book for free or choose another one. Simply go to audible.com. I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You'll be signing up for the gold account. That's a book a month account. It also includes the Daily Digest of your choice, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. You listen to them. They come alive. The the Jack Ryan, basically you have 16 Jack Ryan movies waiting for you. I mean, it's just so cool. Uh, 150,000 titles, all kinds of literature, young adult and children books as well. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Try it out today. Cancel any time in the first 30 days. You pay nothing, but your book is yours to keep, of course. <laughs> I like this one. Does this baby make me look straight? Confessions of a gay dad. I like it. <laughs> Great title. Audible pod. Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's classic lives on. Audiblepodcast.com. Oh, here's what I need. Slash security now. Unstuff your life. Kick the clutter habit. All right. Let's get to our questions. Are you ready, Steve Gibson? I am. I did want to just mention a bit of errata. Many people commented that I was calling COTS, the acronym for commercial off the shelf. I was saying common off the shelf. Oh. So I certainly stand corrected. I, oh. I know the difference. I just got started on the wrong track and I kept saying the wrong thing <clears throat> all through the podcast. Happens all the time to me, not to you. Here we go, Steve. We got some cooking in here as well. Uh, just watched the coffee making. This is from Guillaume Claire in Sherbrooke, Quebec, Canada. Just watched the coffee making episode uh, that you and Leo did on New Year's Eve. Did I not get the ratio of beans per hot water? Ounces of bean versus ounces of water. 
So Steve well, has his recipe here. This is the key. Yeah, we're, we're going to do this again next year, but so that people don't have to wait. Um, I did some measuring uh, so that I could give people what the, what the ratio is. So I take what is a quarter cup dry measure, you know, 60 milliliters is also written on my little quarter cup scoop of whole Starbucks espresso bean. And that's a level quarter cup, not heaping. Uh, when I've made it heaping by mistake, it's the coffee has been a little too strong for me. So, um, so just, a, you know, sort of a flat uh, level quarter cup of beans. So then I grind them for drip brewing, uh, which is a rather coarse grind uh, using a good burr grinder. Then they're drip brewed through a brown paper Melita style paper filter. And the input is about um, 750 milliliters of clean reverse osmosis filtered drinking water. So that's the ratio, 750 milliliters of water uh, through a quarter cup of drip ground beans uh, filtered through a Melita style filter. And boy, I mean, I've had people stunned by how good this coffee is, smooth, rich, and creamy. Uh, And people who normally need cream and sugar for their coffee uh, just don't need it with this. So that's, that's the recipe. Here's a tweet from Dave Held underscore info. Seems a bit confused, he says, about the NSA ant coverage. If the NSA can do this in 2008, and those are the ant slides we saw five years old. Yep. Who, who else can do it now? Aren't you worried? Is it all a big joke like the podcast was? I don't know what that <laughs> means. Well, okay, so um, I think Dave is upset with me that I'm not more upset about this. Ah. And, you know, that's sort of my nature. I mean, I don't get upset about things I don't have any control over. And I have no control over this. So, I mean, I think, I don't think this is a joke at all. I think this is worrisome. But on the other hand, this is not, none of this was mass surveillance technology. This was, this was old school um, you know, bug somebody's office because you need information from them and irradiate their bug with a cool radar beam in order to, you know, in, or, in order to uh, get that information. And yes, this is old technology, but this is what I would hope our taxpayer dollars are going for. I mean, we want our intelligence gathering to be able to do this kind of job. Um, so I, so I'm not upset by this because, you know, I'm here to report it and to sort of explain the technology. And again, I, to me, this seems a, an appropriate use of these kinds of spying resources. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have the attitude that the uh, that nobody should be allowed to spy on anybody else. Well, yeah, but good, good luck. luck. That. <laughs> <laughs> no spying allowed. Uh, that's a. I don't. I don't think that's an unreasonable point of view. But uh, no, it's not. It's not practical in this day. And, and it's not going to change the world. No. Bill Gearheiser, Boca Raton, raises a common question about VPNs. He says he signed up for ProXPN. Heard about it on the show. I wonder if Steve's evaluated the issue of identifying the far end of the pipe on ProXPN. For example, if I connect to Amsterdam and start browsing, I know 
that's fairly anonymous. Now, I, we got to explain, VPN is not about anonymity, but all right. But if during that session my mailer does a poll for email, won't that poll pop out at the same end of the pipe to Amsterdam? Won't that identify who owns the pipe? If so, what does one have to do to anonymize a bit better? VPN has never been about anonymity. Yeah, and that's why I chose this question, yeah. because it is a common misunderstanding. The, the, the way to think about a VPN is that it protects your local environment. That is, without that at Starbucks, you are really, <laughs> you are really not safe. Because Starbucks is an open Wi-Fi uh, that is unencrypted, and anybody sitting there sniffing the traffic gets anything that's unencrypted. So, you know, which typically is like all of your email, unless you're explicitly encrypting, for example, using Google Mail now finally is over HTTPS connections. But, you know, typical pop email is still often an IMAP or still often not. So so the idea is you use a VPN to to get out of your local environment, whether it's Starbucks or the hotel that you're in, which is another common source of attack, or even your ISP that increasingly is, unfortunately, not very trustworthy with your own traffic. You want to get it away from them. So, so it is absolutely true that when it emerges on the Internet at one of these aggregation points, you know, where the VPN server is that you've connected to, then, you know, it's, it's essentially it's, it's out of the vicinity that was in danger, and now you're just sort of out in the middle of the Internet somewhere, probably without anybody looking at it. Although you could argue that, you know, VPN servers are other targets of opportunity, sort of in, the, in a variant of the way that Tor servers, you know, the Tor exit nodes represent a target of opportunity. But I guess, I guess you know, the difference that, is it's the difference between local anonymity and global anonymity. You are locally anonymous, but you're not globally anonymous. And so, it's, 8-Bit Steve made a point in the chat room. It does say in the, in the XP, Pro XPN uh, copy, uh, surf the web anonymously. And that we should, I didn't write the copy, but we should, but we should probably explain that that means yeah, from the point of view right. of your ISP or anybody sitting next to you at a coffee shop, not globally anonymous. Right. And as it Nobody turns out, global anonymity is challenging even with Tor. Um, yes. It's, it's yes. A tough thing to achieve. Yeah, it really, it's really not something that the Internet offers. It wasn't yeah, that's kind of my point earlier on is that we, we're yep. asking an awful lot of the Internet when we say we want to do, our, do everything privately. Right. Uh, Eric, in Santa Cruz, my old stomping grounds, wonders about an IP version 6 version, IPv6 version of Shields Up. Uh, curious when you plan to set up uh, Shields Up over IPv6. I think it would be a great addition. you have any plans for that? So I would love the time... <laughs> to do that. Um, I actually did purchase some hardware that would begin to take me in that direction. I talked to Level 3, my main my main pipe provider at GRC, and also to Cogent that runs my, my T1s because I would need my T1s to have IPv6 space in order to develop the technology here, which I would then carry to Level 3 and install at GRC. All I need is time. I would love to to rewrite for V6. But as everybody knows, uh, I have a bunch of things on my plate at the moment. I got to get Squirrel launched. Then it's back to SpinWrite to get 6.1 launched. Then it's, I think, beyond recall to get that done. 
then I'm really thinking, you know, the way the world is gone, I should go back and take a look at CryptoLink, but do it as open source software, never intending for it to be commercial. Um, but we'll sort of play that by ear. We'll see where, what the world looks like when I'm on the other side of of Spinrite 6.1 and everybody's got that. Uh, and I've probably got beyond recall finished because I think that needs to follow. Then we'll sort of see what's, you know, where we stand. All I need is time. And, there, you know, I'm the only one writing the code and I'm sort of, a, I'm a turtle. I'm slow and methodical, but the stuff lasts a long time. So uh, it's just a matter of getting to it. Uh, Jeff Levy in Poughkeepsie, New York, asks about TrueCrypt. I recently bought a 64-gig flash drive, decided to do whole drive encryption with TrueCrypt. While going through the process, I noticed all of TrueCrypt's algorithms are 256-bit. Does that mean my drive has only 256-bit encryption, even though my password is 30 characters long? Or does the strength of the encryption lie in the password length? Love the show. Excuse me. Love the show. Longtime SpinWrite listener. Now you know User. I'm I'm not sure if you chain encryption algorithms they almost certainly use 256 bits for the various key lengths. I don't know if the other encryption algorithms because I didn't do any research on this specifically it just just occurred to me as I was listening to Leo read the question. Um if you use AES which is the standard, then you could use it with 256 bits. And it is 256 bits. I mean, that's that's now, as I have said in the past, 256 bits is the new black. It is all anybody needs. It is your absolutely private Bitcoin identity that no one can guess. It is your BitTorrent sync ID that no one can guess. It is your master key for Squirrel my project of the moment, which no one can guess. I mean, it is it is impossible to guess that. So what they do is they they use your password to encrypt a randomly chosen 256-bit key. When you're setting up TrueCrypt and they ask you to like move the mouse around in random directions in order to like add additional entropy to what they've already got, that's the that's the 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 pseudo random 256 bit master key which is used to encrypt your drive but then that is encrypted under your password so the way someone would crack your truecrypt encoded volume they would never never try to start guessing 256 bit keys there're just too many of them they would always guess passwords run it through TrueCrypt's um, algorithm to decrypt the password into a, a candidate 256-bit key and then see if that works. That's the way you crack it. Now, it is likely, because I'm sure TrueCrypt guys did this right, that if you chain crypto, if you chain cryptos, remember that there's an option in TrueCrypt of not only using just AES, but also using Blowfish or maybe triple DES and who knows what, if you change and you can like use them all, they probably 
take another chunk of entropy for the key for the second one and another chunk of entropy as the key for the third and so forth. So you actually do get a longer key. But to my mind, that's just crazy overkill. The only reason you would want that is if if a defect were found in the crypto you were using, having them chained would protect you under the other ones. But, you know, AES is really living up to its reputation and no one is finding any problems with it despite looking really hard good yes dan murfin in london the uk notes another remote access router disaster as a customer of ee in the uk and someone who uses their bright box too i was a little dismayed to learn this morning that it is subject to yet another remote access vulnerability my question is can we really trust any of these isp provided routers or should any security conscious user buy a third-party router they can fully configure? I think given given what we have just seen with this port 32764 disaster, I mean, and, and you know what, Leo, I'm feeling like guilty that I didn't suggest I jump on to your well, we your talked about it uh, weekend show we talked I, actually about I thought show. you had because yeah. I saw some traffic patterns yeah. on the weekend where I thought oh I you know I looked at the clock when I saw the site you know who was on. <laughs> I thought, okay Leo must have just talked about this port because yeah, yeah. I was talking yeah, about securing a wireless router I do this talk fairly frequently and you know the five things you need to do except now we have to add another one which yep. is test your uh, go to bit.ly slash port 32764 and test yep. that router. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so my feeling is given what we've just learned, anybody who is concerned about their their security ought to get a router that can accept either the tomato or the DDWRT known known clean firmware and load that up you know both of those projects produce a beautiful router that is feature complete and you know just you just reflash a router that that can accept it and then you know what you've got otherwise look what we keep learning you know not long ago it was the open the the open UPnP port disaster and now we've got this obscure random port up in high port space um wow i i just think just, you know, switch to some firmware that you can trust because this is, I mean, this is your internet facing self. Yeah. This is what the world has, you know, of, of, of you is your router. You like OpenWRT. What is it that you like the best? Do you? Um, I, you know, I'm in big iron routing, so I'm not using any. But yeah. I, I, I always say either OpenWRT or the, the tomato, tomato firmware, both. Yeah. And those and those are open source, so people keep them up to date and and yeah. av- avoid these kinds of. Uh, and there's a great pitfalls. great team on both in both cases that, that yeah. are maintaining those. Yeah. Uh, Tom Walker, Littleton, Colorado. Speaking of the devil. Speaking of the devil, he's wondering about port three two seven six four as well. Steve, a quick question: Wouldn't either my Windows firewall or my antivirus firewall block port three two seven six four? For some reason, he says, this reminds me of the first program I wrote back in 1979. Let X equals zero. X equals X plus one. Print X. Go to 20. In other words, have the computer count up uh, by one. He says, I want to see how long it took a computer uh, trash 80 
Model 1 with 4K of memory to count to a million. It never went past 32767, then aired out with overflow occurred at Lied 20. Huh. So uh, is it a coincidence that it's 32764? Actually, they're closely related. Um, the fact that his TRS-80 crashed out at 32767 tells us that that version of BASIC was using... And it was using integer math with 16-bit variables because oh, – and it's signed, by the way, because 32767 is one less than half of 65536. And the way, the way two's complement math, which is what this is using, the way it works is the high bit – the very the most significant bit is considered the sine bit. So if you force that to be zero, meaning the number is positive, and all the other one bits are on, then that value is three two seven six seven. So the maximum positive value that a sixteen bit signed value can contain is three two seven six seven. So when his basic program was at 32767 and tried to increment that, it overflowed its representation. It could not represent 32768, the next one up, in in a 16-bit signed register. And so it just exploded. And so, and as I mentioned before, 32764 is four down from the midpoint of the port range, which goes from from 1 to 36765, the midpoint is 32768, and 32764 is 4 or less than that. So, yes, they are related. And to answer Tom's question, which we sort of answered just in the prior one, the, the problem with that port, 32764, is not Windows firewall or Windows or anything inside your network. It's the router itself. It's the router that's on the front line that's where there is a service, an obscure little backdoor Trojan, really, which is listening to that port and accepting commands. So nothing inside your network can help you because it's the router itself that is going to accept that connection and execute commands from a bad guy. Uh, let's see. Andrew Stenenson, Dorset, UK, muses about XP updates in our next question. Should Microsoft stop all security patches for XP? Or maybe should they have done it more gradually? <laughs> I don't know how you do it gradually. But what I mean is it seems rather brutal, brutal to pull the plug on all security patches all at once. Maybe they should uh, continue to patch the most severe remote code execution vulnerabilities until XP usage has dropped to an arbitrary percentage. Slightly good news for XP users. Microsoft has extended support, he says, for security essentials until July 2015. That's not quite true. They're going to update the virus definitions, but will not update security essentials. It's a big difference. So, yeah, so, you know, as an XP user, um, I'm... I guess the only thing that I, I, I there's there's a number of things happening here all at once. First of all, the thing that's annoying is that Microsoft is essentially getting XP security fixes for free for the most part because 
all of the same things. What we keep seeing is when there are vulnerabilities found, they exist in Windows 8 and 7 and Vista and XP because it's it's a common code base. You know, my complaint with the, with this constant version churn is that it's not for the user's sake. It's for Microsoft's sake. It's for upgrade revenue. So... You know, largely. I mean, look at what a catastrophe Windows 8 has been. Why did they force everyone off of 7? Whoa, because they can, you know, get re- revenue from upgrading people. So, so I guess what's annoying is if there was a, a security vulnerability that only affected XP, I could understand them not patching it. But they're, they're actually addressing vulnerabilities in the core shared code of all of these OSs. So why not toss in XP if it applies rather than just saying, no, we're from this, from April 8th on of 2014, you don't get patched. Because I mean, what that does, of course, is it's forcing upgrades of people who don't want to upgrade. Their XP is working just fine like mine is. I have no interest in upgrading, but I'm not, you know, I and and a world of other people are, what is it? It's like 43% of Windows is still running XP, something crazy like that, because it's just fine. But Microsoft is saying, okay, uh, we're not going to continue patching, even when we have the patches, even when we d- develop them. We're not going to give them to you because we're going to uh, make you upgrade. It's like, eh. has okay, been 13 well, years, uh, Steve. But, Leo, it's Eudora's working just fine for me. They haven't updated that either. Just, I know. They're dead and gone. But it works just fine. There's this weird, weird mindset that has that the people have developed that you know new stuff is better look at windows 8 i don't think that's any better <laughs> you know paul didn't paul can, can declare it a complete disaster i don't think paul said that although i keep trying to get him to <laughs> it's pretty it's a disaster all right <laughs> yeah God, um, talk now- about keeping yourself busy just explaining to people how to use it. This oh. this next one seems to come from the same person, Andrew Stevenson in Dorset, UK. Oh, oh it's weird that I, it's funny too, because when I uh, when I was putting it in, I thought, wow, got a lot of people in Dorset, UK, yeah, but I didn't same guy, I think. So, I don't, so but, sorry, to every, sorry to everybody else. I didn't mean to be giving uh, Andrew excess time. I think it's a typo. Well, maybe not. So you're I'm, saying this I'm, actually is the same guy? It probably is. <laughs> Stephen Leo, there's been a change to the way SSL Lab rates TLS connections. Congratulations, Steve. You're now an A-plus with extra credit because you use strict transport security. If you want to attain the green bar on SSL Labs for using forward secret ciphers, I believe you need to add the older DHE cipher suites to your server, which should change your rating from with modern browsers to robust, which you can see in the protocol details i guess ivan ristic who who writes these tests has written about what he's changed this is an odd this is an ever-changing standard in a way right well but this is significant um what because uh ssl labs is a site that i know our users are huge fans of oh yeah it's sslabs.com because you can put any server into it like google or microsoft or grc um, dot com in every case, and it'll tell you about the security suites that the server offers. To get that security, your browser, as we know in it with SSL, has to be able to have compatible uh, security suites. But this will show 
what the server offers. The big change here is strict transport security is not SSL, it's HTTP. So so what what has happened is is SSL Labs has dropped to the depending on how you look at it, the layer above or the layer below, probably the layer above, at the at the protocol application layer, and it's noticed that GRC, when you make a query from GRC over SSL, or not actually, it doesn't matter, although GRC now, you know, forces SSL, um, or 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 if you try to connect without it, we, we redirect you to the same page over SSL so, so that we've upgraded all of our links and so forth. The point is that after your connection, anything, any asset you request from GRC, we send back the strict transport security header with a long expiration. It's, I don't know what it is, 301 something or something. something. It's like, you know, like basically I'm saying forever use only SSL. So what that does is browsers will cache that and browsers will then silently upgrade the HTTPS connections themselves to HT, I'm sorry, the HTTP connections to HTTPS because they are, they have cached permission to do that, that they received from GRC for that long period of time. And so we're now rating an A plus um, at SSL Labs because we're doing that. And we, of course, as our listeners will remember, I went one step further um, and asked Adam over at Google to build that knowledge into Chrome so that even the first time, there's one little tiny remaining exploit possibility, which is if a browser had never visited GRC or didn't understand about uh, strict transport security, you the first connection could be over HTTP, not with Chrome. Chrome knows it's built into Chrome that grc.com will always be HTTPS. And so even the very first time you connect, Chrome elevates the connection, upgrades it to uh, SSL, even if you didn't ask for it. So this is a nice step forward for, for SSL Labs. They're, I mean, it's, they're making their test more comprehensive by, begin, by going past the SSL handshake into the actual HTTP protocol and looking at how, uh, what the server does. So that's, that's very cool. So thanks for bringing that to my attention. Yay, and yeah. now, now our listeners. Yes. Well, my friend, we have run out of time. No, we haven't. We've run out of questions. We've run out of run out. Run out. We're all out. But uh, it's always fun to uh, do this. If you have a question for Steve for future episodes, uh, don't email him. Just go to grc.com slash feedback. That's his feedback form. And it, I guess it does. I didn't know this, but it does go to his email box. Yeah, um, where we'll join fifty thousand other questions. <laughs> it goes. It goes actually to a separate, uh, like off on the side, security now email box, um, and then I pull. I normally pull it uh, when we're doing a Q and A to get the latest, and I I sort through those, browse through them, and find find good things. Very nice. And the well, good news is, it's not piling up forever any longer. Now I've got mail store to to send them all off to. When does uh, when is what is it total recall total non recall go on sale? 
Oh, Beyond Recall. Beyond Recall. Uh, it'll be after it'll be it'll be after Spinrite six one. Okay, so Spinrite is there. GRC.com, Spinrite uh, six. Uh, free yep. upgrades for life to six one. Free upgrades to six one. You'll also find a lot of freebies. Steve's very generous with his time and a lot of security updates and things like that. Uh, and sixteen kilobit versions of the show, which Steve edits with his very own hands using a razor blade and a grease pencil. He also <laughs> makes transcripts, handwritten transcripts, available from Elaine Ferris at uh, the same place, grc.com. We have somewhat larger, automatically edited versions of audio and video available at our site, twit.tv slash sn. And, of course, you can always subscribe after the fact, anytime, uh, and all of fa- your favorite podcast clients. We do the show, I said, I said uh, Wednesdays, Tuesdays now, 11 a.m. Pacific. No, I'm sorry. 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC. That old times wow. creeps in. Well, you do old, ha- old, old habits. habits. Die right. hard. Long time. Long time. Um, and uh, you can watch live. We'd love it if you do. Otherwise, we'll see you uh, on the Internet. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.